Thank you for tuning into our podcast, History's Top 3, brought to you by the History Department of the U.S. Naval Academy located in Annapolis, Maryland. In this show, we discuss and debate key turning points, trends, and major figures of world history. Our goal is to explore the varied landscapes and seascapes of the past in hope of shedding some light on how the present world came to be. In the studio today are our three co-hosts, Professor Thomas Burgess, Lieutenant Mac Anderson, and Lieutenant Commander Andy Cox, all instructors and lifelong students of history. Today, we'll be discussing the top three most influential American elections pre-World War II. The point of the topic is not necessarily to just debate which election had the most influential results or consider what-ifs, like what if Lincoln had lost to Douglas. Rather, we're looking for ways that notable American elections changed American society and politics themselves. The election is the fulcrum here. With that in mind, each co-host will offer a few contenders for the list, and then after everyone's had their say, we'll narrow it down to three. With that, Mac, tell us why the election of 1800 deserves to be on the list. Thanks, Andy. The election of 1800 was, in many ways, a referendum on the direction of the Young Republic. John Adams, a Federalist and the President since 1797, had successfully seen the United States through the quasi-war with France and had expanded the size and the scope of the U.S. Navy. This came, however, at a significant cost. By the end of 1800, the U.S. Navy represented almost one-third of the entire U.S. federal budget. To pay for this massive expenditure, the Federalist government increased taxes a move that was, in classic American fashion, massively unpopular amongst the voting public. Further, Adams' support of the Alien and Sedition Acts had caused significant concerns over the growing power of the federal government. Thomas Jefferson, one of the founders of the Anti-Federalist Democratic Republican Party, saw this as an opportunity to topple the Federalist stranglehold on the government. The campaign itself was bitter and fierce. The fact that Jefferson had been Adams' vice president only added to the acrimonious nature of the campaign. But what makes this election particularly influential is what happened after the electoral votes were tallied. At the time, each elector was required to cast two votes, and the candidate with the most votes would become president, while the runner-up would become vice president. As it turned out, Jefferson and Aaron Burr, who was running for vice president, received the exact same amount of electoral votes. This had never happened before, so the election was sent to the House of Representatives to decide. While many Federalists hoped to elect Aaron Burr as president over their arch-nemesis Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton stepped in and influenced his fellow Federalists to vote for Jefferson due to his deep dislike of Burr. In the end, it took a total of 36 ballots in the House of Representatives before Jefferson won a majority. And the experience from this election led directly to the 12th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which clarified that electors must vote separately for president and vice president, a system that still exists today. You mentioned how acrimonious this election was, and we think of our politics today as especially dirty, but did a bit of reading on this that was struck by what I found. Um, a Connecticut newspaper warned that electing Jefferson would create a nation where, quote, murder, robbery, rape, adultery, and incest will openly be taught and practiced. Another journalist and Jefferson supporter wrote that Adams was a rageful, lying, warmongering fellow and a gross hypocrite who, quote, behaved neither like a man nor like a woman 
but instead possessed a hideous hermaphroditical character. I mean, this is a, a real kick in the groin, isn't it? I mean, Yeah, the, and those are some great insults. And what's interesting is, uh, at the, in this election and for, for many elections to follow, the candidates themselves are not the ones campaigning. That was viewed as uncouth, as beneath the candidate. So it was all these proxies, the, the newspapers for either side, that were engaging in this kind of duel of words between the two candidates. But it was very much um, a tense battle between the Federalists trying to maintain their stronghold in, in government uh, and the Anti-Federalists or the Democratic Republicans who are trying to break through. What about the differences between Adams and Jefferson? Because starting with Jefferson, we get the kind of Virginian dynasty in U.S. presidencies for a while. Yeah, so the Virginia dynasty, of course, referring to Jefferson, uh, Madison, and then Monroe, uh, fell, generally speaking, into the uh, southern institutions, respecting of uh, rural populations, small government uh, ideals, whereas the Federalists, uh, like Adams and Washington before, uh, wanted to build up the institutions of the central government. A larger divide existed uh, between international relations between the two parties, with the Federalists, generally speaking, uh, desiring uh, close ties, alliances, economic trade with Britain, while the Democratic Republicans more broadly favored uh, ties with the French, right? So, uh, but like you said, we see the Virginia dynasty continue for the next three president or next two presidents after Jefferson. Um, and this leads to essentially the, the downfall of the Federalists. After the election of 1800, the Federalists do not put forth a, a candidate capable of winning large amounts of support uh, again. Uh, and after that, uh, you see it's not the divide between Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, but in future elections, it becomes a divide between the Democratic wing of the Democratic Republicans and the Republican wing of the Democratic Republicans, helping to, uh, us to understand how we got to our current parties. Uh, but with all that said, Thomas, you've got a very influential election, the election of 1860. Thanks, Mac. Uh, I chose this election because, as everyone knows, it led straight to the Civil War. And by now, instead of debating naval expenditure, Americans were, were debating far more existential issues, and none more so than slavery. The election featured the upstart Republicans against the divided Democrats. At their convention, and after a total of 57 ballots, the Democrats could not reach a decision and chose to adjourn. A second convention in Baltimore then nominated Stephen Douglas of Illinois, who supported popular sovereignty, or the idea that every new territory entering the Union should decide on its own whether to legalize slavery. Southern Democrats, however, met separately and nominated the current vice president, John Breckinridge, who wanted slavery to be automatically extended into the Western territories. Interestingly, the sitting president, James Buchanan, supported the Southern Democrats. The Republicans were also divided. Lincoln was not a front runner, and yet his supporters managed to convince most delegates to accept him as their second choice. As a moderate, Lincoln was disliked by the radicals because he merely opposed slavery's Western extension while promising not to interfere with slavery in the South. 
Finally, a fourth major candidate emerged in the person of former Senator John Bell of Tennessee, whose brand new Constitutional Union Party favored some sort of unspecified compromise over slavery. Their slogan was, the Union as it is, the Constitution as it is. And so the election featured four candidates advocating different solutions to the regional divides that had characterized American politics for a generation. With open talk and threats of rebellion, Lincoln failed to even get on the ballot in 11 southern states. His opponents hoped that no single candidate would win a majority in the Electoral College, thus throwing the election to the House of Representatives. And had a mere 35,000 votes shifted in New York State, that would have happened. But instead, Lincoln won with less than 40% of the popular vote. We all more or less know what happened next. In all the 15 slaveholding states, constitutional conventions assembled, and in seven, they voted for secession. After Fort Sumter, four more joined the Confederacy. Aside from the what if of Lincoln and Douglas and Breckinridge, what do you think this election teaches us about moments of intense partisan crisis? How much, how much was secession an actual threat before the election happened, before Lincoln won? Uh, and do you think that tells us anything about America's commitment to democracy? Yeah, I think the short answer is that before the election, there was a lot of secession talk, um, hence the speed by which Southern states decided afterwards to leave the Union. Within two weeks of the election, five Southern states scheduled new elections, this time to choose delegates to decide in convention whether to secede or not. This despite the fact that the Republicans failed to win a majority in either the Senate or the House, and so had no means by which to abolish slavery, even if they had wanted to do so. What I find really interesting and also disturbing about all of this is that to what extent Southerners demonized and willfully misunderstood the Republican Party, and Lincoln in particular. When South Carolina seceded, it declared that Republicans believe that, quote, a war must be waged against slavery until it shall cease throughout the United States. This was patently false, since Lincoln made it as clear as he could that he would not interfere with slavery in the South. And so due to a fundamental misunderstanding, popular fears in the South reached a fever pitch, and this led to secession. So we can ask, how did so many Southerners become so deceived? And why were they so afraid? Maybe they believe the sort of rhetoric that we hear so often today, that one party has declared a war on this or that, without any real justification. And so if we want to avoid the kind of paranoia that led to the Civil War, maybe we today should put a lid on the pundits and politicians and what they're saying, because as in 1860, such rhetoric of war can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I'll just say that as an historian, I regret that we don't spend more time studying the impact of credulousness in history. Credulousness is a vulnerability to deception, to being scammed, if you're credulous, it means you're easily conned. It's not something to be proud of. I can't think of any study that tries to chart the rise and fall of credulousness in world history or American history. How would they quantify it? But someone could easily write a bestseller about when societies destroy themselves over conflicts of their own imagination. That's what I fear is happening today. We're in an age of credulousness. So with Lincoln's election, uh, we know there were there were four 
strong candidates running. Uh, Lincoln received just under 40% of the vote. Um, how did that shape the beginning of his presidency, this idea of not having a true mandate to govern? I think it was his intention to maintain the status quo. The question, at least in the states, in the territories, he was pretty clear about wanting to prohibit slavery's further westward extension. But in the states themselves, maintain the status quo. That was his intention, which is a policy which you have to adopt if you don't have a mandate for, uh, to govern in some sort of radical direction. And while my first entry, the election of 1800, represented a full-scale shift in the balance of political power, the election of 1876 was more of a Faustian bargain between the two preeminent political parties. As Ulysses S. Grant was finishing up his second term, the Republican Party nominated Rutherford B. Hayes, the governor of Ohio, to run against Samuel Tilden, the Democratic governor of New York. One of the key issues of the campaign dealt with Reconstruction and the way forward for the removal of federal troops from the South. To try to break the Republican control over Southern governments, the Democratic Party made direct inroads with white supremacist groups like the Red Shirts in South Carolina and the White League in Louisiana. According to the official election strategy of the Red Shirts, part of the plan was that, quote, every Democrat must feel honored bound to control the vote of at least one Negro by intimidation purchase, or keeping him away. Never threaten a man individually. If he deserves to be threatened, the necessities of the time require that he should die." End quote. The results of the election were seemingly clear at first. Tilden had won the popular vote by a margin of 250,000 votes, receiving a clear majority of 50.9%. But three states, Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, had conflicting reports about which candidate had won their electoral votes. Understandably, the actions of white supremacist groups had resulted in various claims of election interference, voter intimidation, and voter fraud. To sift through these claims and try to certify the election, an electoral commission was formed with five members from each, the House of Representatives, the Senate, and the Supreme Court. The Democrats found in this commission an opportunity to achieve their broader political goals, regardless of who would become president. A backroom agreement, known as the Compromise of 1877, resulted in the Democrats agreeing to go along with the decision of the Electoral Commission, essentially handing the election to Rutherford and the Republicans, if all federal troops were removed from southern states. While the Republicans did win the presidency by one electoral vote, the Democrats received the end of the Reconstruction era, and the violence perpetrated against black voters in the 1876 election became a permanent feature of Southern politics for decades. So I'll, I'll begin with, I guess, the what if question here, but kind of to set the, the terms here. Would it have been that different if Hayes had won outright? Would Reconstruction have remained, or would things have turned out any differently uh, in, if this compromise hadn't happened? Ultimately, it would not have been very different. And the key here is that uh, in this, uh, during this election, 
the House of Representatives was under Democratic control with 179 Democrats to 103 Republicans. And so uh, the ability for Hayes to pass some of the additional protections, which he wanted, uh, additional federal protections for voters in the South, would have been heavily, heavily limited by the already uh, strongly Democratic-controlled House of Representatives. Uh, however, if Hayes had won outright, if there was no corrupt bargain, as some, as some have taken to calling the Compromise of 1877, it is likely that Hayes would have had more political capital. It's likely that he could have used the office of the executive a bit more effectively than he was able to do to get some of those federal measures passed. Um, but the bottom line is the American public, even in the North, was tired of what they viewed as an insurgency in the South. Uh, most of the American public was ready by this point to call Reconstruction quits. To, to call it a failure. Uh, and Hayes, during his, during his time, did attempt multiple bills that would have strengthened voter support, uh, would have weakened the ability for groups like the Red Shirts or the White League to engage in voter suppression, but his results on that were, were quite mixed, just because he lacked political capital, given that many saw him as an illegitimate president, and uh, he wasn't able to get control of both um, both houses of government. So this is also fascinating. I was going to ask you to maybe say a bit more about the impact of this election on the African Americans of the South. And what we don't often understand or realize today is that they were a majority of the population in South Carolina, in um, Louisiana and Mississippi, and they were almost a majority in Alabama and Georgia. So this was a large segment of the population in the South, and maybe you could speak to that a bit more perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. And that large segment of the population is reflected in just how many black legislators uh, got elected from states like those before Reconstruction ended. After 1877, we still see a handful, uh, a handful of black legislators uh, getting elected in, in southern states. But by the 1890s, uh, Jim Crow laws start to, to start to roll out. The complete lack of federal protection uh, is incredibly detrimental, not just to the representation of blacks in government, but to their fundamental right to vote, as it, as it was. Um, and so the combined impacts of this leads us to the, the great migration of the early 20th century, where we see black men, women, children, families uh, flocking out of southern states into the north, uh, where they viewed, uh, in some cases, rightfully so, certainly not in all cases, that their rights would be more respected. Uh, but perhaps the most important impact is the complete lack of protection against the white supremacist groups that grow, uh, of course, in 1876 and, and expand even more afterwards in places like South Carolina and Mississippi and Louisiana, where without federal troops, there is absolutely no one supporting uh, black voters or protecting their right to vote. Uh, and like I said earlier, with one of the election goals of the red shirts who the, whom the Democrats had allied themselves with uh, in the election, with one of their goals being to not only intimidate, but if necessary, to murder those blacks who tried to vote, 
uh, this is something that becomes ever more common as federal protections fail in the post-Reconstruction era. And with that, Andy's going to take us 20 years down the timeline and talk about the important election of 1896. That's right. So leading up to the 1896 election, the stars really seem to be aligning for the powerful up-and-coming third party, the populists. Populist candidates had already won state and congressional offices, and there had been populist governors, and their platform issues were nationally discussed, and the time seemed ripe for revolution. The country was stuck in hard economic times of the 1893 Depression, and the biggest issue centered on the money supply. The populists pushed for free silver, or unlimited silver coinage, to help alleviate farmers' debts and other effects of the Depression. They merged with the Democratic Party in 1896 and nominated 36-year-old William Jennings Bryan for president, a fiery orator for free silver and working-class concerns. The Republicans favored sticking with the gold standard and nominated the pro-business former Ohio congressman and governor William McKinley. They also hired the wealthy and connected industrialist Mark Hanna as his campaign manager. Now, Hanna combined his extensive business knowledge and personal contacts with McKinley's political wisdom into a tight, orderly campaign that would take on the populist juggernaut. Hanna promised political patronage rewards to Southern supporters and to hold to the gold standard in order to secure the East and industrial workers. He also solicited campaign contributions from corporations like Standard Oil and wealthy capitalists like Andrew Carnegie who believed that free silver policies would ruin the national economy and their personal fortunes. Estimates for Hannah's campaign spending ranged from $3.5 million to as much as $16.5 million. And adjusted for inflation, that runs somewhere between $117 million to $552 million today. This massive war chest convinced Bryan to make a personal appear to the voters, especially in the decisive battleground of the Midwest. Bryan traveled over 18,000 miles by rail and delivered his famous Cross of Gold speech over 500 times in 100 days, demanding free silver reforms and attacking business leaders as the cause of the Depression. Meanwhile, Hannah carried out a savvy, well-funded front porch campaign that set new standards in presidential campaigning and political messaging. As William McKinley sat on his front porch in Ohio, Hannah personally paid for over half a million voters and delegates to travel by rail to meet him. His well-organized staff prepared remarks for both McKinley and the visiting delegates about issues of the day and then pushed those remarks to daily papers nationwide. Hannah also directed a network of paid Republican speakers, including Teddy Roosevelt, to travel around the nation denouncing Bryan as a radical and a threat to the economy. That November, amongst high national turnout, over 90%, McKinley won both the popular vote and the Electoral College by sweeping the upper Midwest, the Northeast, the Pacific Coast, and almost every industrialized city. The election of 1896 had massive consequences. Free silver was dead. The populists were done as a national political force, and no third party has since cracked the two-party system. It could also be seen as accelerating the modern urban-rural divide, which continued through the 20th century in other movements like civil rights, the Great Migration, etc. And it also introduced the spread and use of national election tools like massive campaign spending and new techniques of political messaging through mass media. 
The victory also turned Hanna into a national symbol of political power for the wealthy. He was ridiculed by cartoonists as Dollar Mark. Yeah, what I find so interesting about this election is just how the electoral map has shifted so dramatically since the 1890s. We see the two major parties shifting positions almost entirely. It's the Democrats based in the South and among farmers of the Midwest and the Great Plains. Now, you know, that's entirely shifted now. And it's the Republicans in 1896 who are based in the Northeastern cities with strong labor union support. I mean, again, a total shift of positions uh, since then. So it's, it's a remarkable contrast to what we have now. Yeah, and 1896 accelerates, if not starts, some of those changes of the political parties that we'll see through the 20th century. The populists came out of earlier farmer organizations like the Farmers Alliance and the Grange starting around the 1870s. And they became their own political party by the 1890s and started winning offices. And their platforms focused on a host of issues like collective bargaining and regulation and nationalization of the railroads and government warehouses for farmers use and other issues that later groups will pick up like direct election of senators and the income tax. Not all of the farmers were part of the populist party, but they were particularly strong in the Midwest and South and in Western states with big silver deposits like Nevada. And those naturally lined up with the base of the Democratic Party, and it provided a, a sort of natural uh, alliance. But it wasn't easy for them. There was this really big debate for years in the 1890s over the fusion or go-it-alone sides of the populist party. And what really sealed the deal for them was that Bryan, the, the Democratic nominee for president, was this outspoken free silver advocate. And then the populists managed to get their guy on the ticket as the VP nom. And this was the best chance for them. After this election, they basically fall apart. A lot of their voters drift to other parties. Their issues are picked up by other parties, including the progressives, many of whom, like Teddy Roosevelt, were anti-populist himself. And they just kind of dissipate. So clearly the, the economic issues are, are big here. But what was the specific divide and support between free silver and the gold standard, and why did that support fall along those lines? So the Depression of 1893 caused some pretty stark economic consequences. You had a lot of deflation or forced low prices. You had a lot of unemployment. There were violent strikes. And free silver is this idea that has been percolating in American politics for like two or three decades now. The idea was that you would allow U.S. mints to accept and process silver bullion into coins, just like they did with gold in the day. And there were a lot of silver deposits in the U.S., especially in the West at that time. And silver coinage had been artificially kind of held at a specific value by government fiat instead of what it was actually uh, valued at. So arguments have been going on for a while. The government has been pulled back and forth over how to deal with silver coinage. And arguably, one of the laws of 1890 to deal with this kickstarts the 1893 depression because it kind of bungles this the pro-silver argument is essentially about dramatically expanding the amount of currency in circulation by minting unlimited silver coins at a rate of like 16 to 1 to gold-backed coins so this will deliberately inflate the currency by providing uh, an increased amount of available dollars especially to farmers and small lenders etc now this will also drive up prices like food prices and things that farmers and ranchers grow and produce. And they, the populists argue that this will help alleviate effects of the Depression. Free silver 
over time comes to like symbolize the urban rural divide of like ordinary Americans against the industrialists and the bankers and the railroads and populist politics had been driven by farmers concerns for a long time. So on the other side of this, you've got the, the GOP, the Republicans basically, because the banking industries, the railroads, the factory owners and creditors are all about the gold standard. It is the center of international currency. It is seen as much more predictable and stable. Some Republicans from Western states are considered silver Republicans. They actually back free silver, but they're, the, they're a very much a minority here. Um, what is interesting about this election is that the vast majority of industrial workers in factories and cities join with the GOP against free silver because city voters, uh, in, including unions, will reject free silver because they see it as a threat to terrible economic conditions like high prices and unemployment, their businesses go bankrupt, etc. And they kind of thought that the populace were putting the farmers' concerns first, and they never really joined them en masse to turn the tables. So speaking of elections during hard times, Thomas, you've got another one. Yes, the election of 1932. Thanks, Andy. So by that year, the nation was in the grips of the worst economic bust in history. Unemployment reaching 23%, industrial production down by half, and ongoing banking crisis. Herbert Hoover was perceived to be a do-nothing president lacking ideas to address the national calamity. As he campaigned, angry crowds threw objects at him and his motorcade. Given the national mood, he had no chance of winning, and as it happened, his opponent was a uniquely gifted politician. Franklin Roosevelt, governor of New York State, managed to unite his party as well as appeal to new blocks of voters who saw in him a more activist response to the Depression. He adopted the popular song, Happy Days Are Here Again, and announced a platform of, quote, liberal thought, planned action, and the greatest good to the greatest number of citizens. Roosevelt won in a landslide carrying all but six states. The shift towards the Democrats was the biggest swing in American electoral history. More than one-sixth of Republicans switched parties. Roosevelt constructed a political coalition that maintained its majority for most of the next 40-plus years. Along with Southern whites, blue-collar workers, Catholics, and northern urban populations, Roosevelt also appealed to African Americans who had been among the Republicans' most reliable voters. Until the Great Depression, most Americans believed in the virtue of a relatively small federal government and were often more concerned with politics on the state and local levels. Liberalism still meant more or less what it did in the days of John Locke. But with the election of FDR, we see the Democrats making a case for a bigger and far more interventionist state, which sponsored welfare programs such as Social Security. While critics called it socialism and claimed it would undermine self-reliance and encourage dependence, in the 1936 elections, the Democrats increased their majorities in, on all levels of government. It was only in the 1960s that a fundamental realignment took place. Labor unions represented a declining share of the workforce, and the votes of their members could no longer be guaranteed. Conservative Southern whites began to register their opposition to liberal programs. The party was also split between the old guard and the so-called new left, opposed to the Vietnam War, and for a more aggressive pursuit of civil rights. At the Democrats' 1968 party convention in Chicago, 
These tensions spilled out into the streets with violent clashes between the police and demonstrators. And Chicago, by the way, was a Democrat-controlled city. Mayor Daley's dominance of city politics you know, lasted a generation, so it was his police versus these new left demonstrators in the streets. It was a very visible clash between two wings of the Democratic Party. So, Thomas, in, in hindsight, we think of FDR as this kind of living legend, right? He sticks out as undoubtedly one of the most important presidents. But at this period in time, in 1932, what made him the right man? Was it his charisma? Was it Hoover's failings? What made uh, Roosevelt capable of bringing this grand coalition together and fundamentally realigning the political lines in the United States? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that any generic Democratic candidate would have defeated Hoover in 32. He was that unpopular. Um, that said, FDR always benefited from his famous name and pedigree. He was from, you know, patrician stock in New York State. He was also a very canny political operator and had run for the vice presidency in 1920. So he had a lot of connections within the Democratic Party, which he maintained. He was also someone who spent a lot of time in the South. Uh, because of his paralysis, he spent years in therapy in Georgia, and they're connected uh, with Southern politicians there of a more conservative bent. Also, it helped that he was a Protestant, whereas his main rival for the candidacy was Al Smith, a Catholic who had ran, run for the presidency in 1928 and lost in a landslide, in part because Southern Protestants didn't want to vote for him as a Catholic. He was the first Catholic presidential candidate ever nominated in American history, and there was some anti-Catholic feeling that was expressed in those election results. But more than anything else, you know, uh, FDR was governor of New York State, and in doing so acquired a reputation for activism, we can say. He tried to initiate farm relief, he tried to do something about unemployment, and he tried to break up the corrupt political establish establishment in New York City, the Tammany Hall establishment of his own party, in fact. And he, he'd also, as governor, begun to use the radio to directly address the people in, in these so-called fireside chats. So that was something he began on the national level when he became president with great effect. So he um, but despite all of this, all this political talent at his disposal, he ran a very cautious campaign, wanting, wanting the focus to remain on Hoover's deficiencies. Sounds like a very unique individual for the, for the time and the job. What do you think makes the 1932 mo election more important? Is it the New Deal programs and the relief efforts that FDR proposes and enacts that, that changes American society? Or is it the voting coalition that knits the new Democratic Party together and lasts for so long? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say the, the former, in fact. I think it's the, the New Deal programs that have a more lasting legacy because um, they established a precedent for Keynesian economic stimulation, which is a program that we've experimented with even as recently as last year with government stimulus spending programs of all varieties. So I would say that's the more lasting legacy. This economic philosophy that he basically bought into coming from uh, John Maynard Keynes, the British economist. It certainly seems to be his, uh, at least the Democratic Party's legacy, yeah. Absolutely. So sticking with FDR, my second election nomination here is his run for third term in 1940. 
Now, the contest and transfer of supreme political power sounds a lot more dramatic than just maintaining it in re-election, but when that re-election defies a norm laid down by the father of the nation, it tends to pique some interest. So in 1940, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt faces the tough choice of running for a third term right as the Nazis overran much of Europe and North Africa. He wasn't actually the first president to consider a third term. Both Grant and Teddy Roosevelt had tried and failed. And initially, FDR was against the idea, and he didn't really even commit to seeking re-election until very late in the campaign season after France had fallen. By that point, he believed no one else had the political skill to handle the coming crisis with Germany, and he was assisted by the fact that so many Democratic political elites thought no one else would be able to defeat the popular Republican nominee, Wendell Wilkie. For his part, Wilkie was a very successful Wall Street industrialist, a lawyer, and a one-time FDR supporter who had never run for office before. Wilkie leaned hard on the messages that FDR had bungled the New Deal, and a message that was particularly resonant among the business class. And he also warned that breaking George Washington's two-term tradition would be a disastrous move. Quote, if one man is indispensable, then none of us is free, end quote. Many Americans expressed outrage that any president would even dare break a tradition they viewed as sacred, and some Democrats even left Roosevelt's campaign when he decided to run. But Wilkie's business career and Republican support ran against the grain of many Americans who believed that corporations and business-friendly rules had created the Great Depression. FDR rode into 1941 on a landslide electoral victory and a 10-point popular vote margin, which was still less than his previous two victories. What presidential candidate wouldn't kill for a 10-point popular vote margin today? Anyway, there are always a lot of counterfactual what-ifs to deal with any election, but it isn't too far to say that America and the world would likely be very different if Wilkie had been president during World War II. Another long consequence of FDR's victory, combined with his unprecedented fourth term in 1944, was the increasing focus on multiple-term presidents. In times of stress and uncertainty, Americans turned to the stable, known hand of FDR. In 1947, with FDR dead and the war over, Congress passed the 22nd Amendment, which limits the number of presidential terms to two. This likely influenced Truman's own decision not to run for a third term and helped garner uh, support of the states through ratification. And since then, Washington's norm has been constitutional law. I think it says a lot about FDR as a man, as a politician, as a leader, that he's breaking this massive precedent that no other presidential candidate or president has, has tried to do before. And in fact, that many have actively stepped away from. Right? Many thought Grant would run for a third term, and he denied. Uh, but the fact that Roosevelt breaks this precedent and wins in a, in a like you said, 10-point margin of victory really says something about him. But uh, going back to the kind of international arena here, how does FDR differ from the other candidates or from Wilkie regarding specifically intervention in Europe? What is FDR trying to do there? Yeah, this election centered on what to do about Europe and Germany. America in 1940 was intensely, but not uniformly, isolationist and anti-war. It had been disillusioned by its experience in World War I. It was still dealing with the Great Depression. There was a lot going on. Wilkie declared he would support Britain, short of declaring war on Germany, 
which contrasted him with a lot of the other Republicans and isolationist hardliners and America First organizations. After FDR increased spending on the Arsenal of Democracy programs, Wilkie actually declared FDR was secretly planning to get the U.S. involved in the European War. Uh, but there was no proof of that, and it just remains a fringe conspiracy theory even today. FDR promised during the campaign there would be no involvement in foreign wars if he was reelected, even though the U.K. Uh, was actively intervening against this position. Uh, Churchill was absolutely terrified that if Wilkie won, it would it would be disastrous for Britain. And even after he won, FDR later regretted making that pledge. And as we know, eventually, uh, after Pearl Harbor, Hitler declares war on the U.S., and that gives us the excuse to join into the European theater as well. I've heard some people say that FDR was actually quite relieved that Hitler declared war on the United States, vice Roosevelt having to, having to go to Congress to seek a declaration of war, because he was still concerned that even though, yes, Japan had attacked and declared war, uh, without the German declaration of war, Roosevelt still wasn't sure if Congress would vote for a two-front war. So um, it certainly seems like he was uh, tied up with a lot of these, these big decisions. Yeah, and just as an interesting aside, uh, Wendell Wilkie and his running mate in the 1940 elections both passed away of natural causes in 1942 and 43. So a what-if question is, if they were elected and both died in office, that would have thrown the presidency to the Secretary of State. The first time that would have happened, yeah. Exactly. So another what-if there. In the middle of World War II. Okay, so those are all our nominations. Uh, reminder that we're not just talking about necessarily who won or what if who had lost. We're looking at notable ways that these elections changed American society and politics themselves. So with that in mind, opening up for debate, what makes one of these elections more important than the other? Yeah, so Thomas, do you want to discuss uh, Andy's entries and try to get a better feel of what we're thinking regarding his, his proposals? Yeah, I, I think that uh, between the election of 1896 and 1940, I have a clear preference for 1940 because that was the war, that was the election that decided World War II in many cases. Between FDR and, and Wilkie, there was this fundamental difference of philosophy over how to fight the war, and it would have thrown open all kinds of possibilities had Wilkie been elected as president and then to just die in office two or three years later, as we mentioned earlier. So I, I would definitely put 1940 as my clear favorite for that question. Yeah, and even with 1896 and McKinley, it's fascinating to hear about how we, we start to have the modern campaign with these huge costs, you know, accounting for inflation. What, 100-plus million, you said, Andy? At least. Yeah, these massive costs that we're so used to now, um, the debates over the economy, but to me, the most important factor is the precedence and the mechanics of the election uh, itself. And so the simple fact that FDR is taking a step that no president has ever done and is rebuking George Washington's precedent of two terms, that to me is enough to, to put that the election of 1940 over the edge and say it's one of the most influential elections because Roosevelt breaks 
a precedent that has been so near and dear uh, to the United States since its inception. So near and dear that they have a constitutional amendment to fix it after he's gone. It, it says something about you if they, if they make an amendment <laughs> after your death that relates to uh, how long you had been president. Yeah, I, I think I have to agree. Um, as much as I really tried to approach this project not looking at uh, who was elected, I think 1940 is one of those elections where the consequences really do revolve around the character as much as the precedent and, and other effects of the election. Um, 1896 sets a lot of precedents in campaigning that we're still living with, but 1940 broke precedent enough that they basically changed the Constitution for it. Um, Mac, what do you think about Thomas's two between 1860 and 1932, both pretty momentous? Is there one that stands out as more influential or important? Yeah, well, I'm just wishing that I would have put uh, one of Roosevelt's elections on there, and then we could have had a clean sweep, just all three of Roosevelt's elections. No, but um, you're talking... Lincoln's election in 1860, and not only the results of that, but the mechanics of how the election works, Lincoln not being on the ballot in southern states, the rise of the Constitutional Union Party and their very obscure political goals that still get them some states, this idea that the election causes Lincoln to try to govern without a mandate and, like Thomas had said, try to maintain a status quo, which we know, of course, failed. Um, I don't think you can look past the significance of Lincoln getting elected over Douglas, right, in terms of splitting the support of the North um, and how that would have shaped history. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think you actually summarized that pretty well. Um, I can't imagine what the country would have been like were it not for Lincoln in charge. This is another one of those where the character of the, of the person matters almost more than what happens afterward. What about you, Thomas? Oh, I would agree. I would say the 1860 election led to the Civil War, and that's more important than perhaps anything else that we could possibly talk about. So, That's pretty done and pat then. Um, what would you say about Max II then, Thomas? The earliest election we identified, 1800, or 1876, the end of Reconstruction? Well, I think the election of 1800 was very consequential because it did lead to the Virginia dynasty the next 24 years. And it was deeply acrimonious. But then again, ultimately, Jefferson and Adams became close friends until the end of their lives. And that's a story that we could talk about. So I really think that the election of 1876 was more momentous because it did signal the end of Reconstruction. We can debate over whether the election ended Reconstruction or whether it would have ended regardless. But the impact that that, that, that and a reconstruction had on African Americans was was just phenomenal and it it delayed the civil rights struggle for another century almost. Yeah, I agree. This is the one I think that maybe most embodies uh, aside from who is actually running that it is the mechanic of the backroom deal that resolves this election in this really weird way that that overturns reconstruction. Uh, maybe faster than it would have happened uh, otherwise, but certainly in ways that basically paved Jim Crow and all of the terrible terrorism and strictures of the, of the South to come after that. Connecting that to, to where we are right now at the Naval Academy, we can see the impacts, the direct impacts of the end of Reconstruction on minority appointments to the Naval Academy. 
In the early 1870s, there had been three black midshipmen appointed from Southern congressmen to the Naval Academy. Uh, none of them graduated. Each of them left uh, largely because of the hazing they experienced. It would not be until 1949 that the Naval Academy graduated its first black midshipman. And that's largely a consequence of losing that representation in Congress, right, of that massive drop of black representatives from the South that we don't see those appointments happen uh, in the end of Reconstruction era. Uh, and kind of the last thing I would say about 1876 is the massive flop, this, this electoral commission that was very controversial led directly to the Electoral Count Act of 1887. And this was later codified uh, into law, U.S. Code Title III, subsection 15, which details how election results are to be contested, if they are to be contested, which, if you all remember, is the code that was used to attempt to decertify certain states' electors during the 2020 election. So that kind of modern consequence that we're seeing was a direct result of the election of 1876. And maybe I can also just add something else, which is that the election of 1876 was the last time until the 1950s that there was an actual two-party system functioning in the southern states, because after 1876, Republicans had no chance to win any kind of statewide elected office because of Jim Crow and the disenfranchisement of African Americans. So to recap, our top three elections in American history pre-World War II were the elections of 1860, 1876, and 1940. That's a lot to go through, but at the end of the day and a lot of hard considerations, we settled on our top three. I would ask, because there are so many elections to choose from, were there any honorable mentions that didn't make the list? I'll, I'll start. I think 1828, when Andrew Jackson and his new Democratic Party and popular politics roar into the national scene and cause all a whole bunch of uproar, both in Congress and everything that happens in the age of Jackson. I think that would have been a nominee for me. Oh, it's easy for me. You can't go without 1912. Roosevelt getting upset at his old party, the Republicans, uh, splitting off, making the Bull Moose Party the coolest name of any political party that's ever been uh, established, and ultimately leading directly to Wilson's victory by splitting the Republican vote between the Bull Moose Party and the Republican Party. So for me, it's definitely the election of 1844 because um, this was a contest over the issue of the annexation of Texas, and the Democratic candidate Polk was very much pro-annexation. His Whig opponent Clay was very ambiguous, mostly anti-annexation, but because Polk was elected, we annexed Texas, and that led to the Mexican-American War with all of its consequences, including leading indirectly to the Civil War a few years later. Well, there's a lot more to debate on the topic, but we're going to save that for a round of beers between friends. We hope we've inspired you to learn more about some of these events yourself. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us for the next episode of History's Top 3.
This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History. And our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.